We are happy to announce that this episode of the SW Show is partially brought to you by Humble Bundle. Well, not, not really. We are part of the Humble Bundle referral program, and we just wanted to say that if you like really cheap games and maybe helping charity pending the Humble thing going on, all you have to do is go to humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. That's right. Humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. And you just do your normal stuff and it just kind of helps us get a couple bucks here and there. Maybe it helps AJ go about his lights. Maybe it's my camera. Maybe we actually pay Corey for helping us out. But again, if you're going to go buy games anyway, it might be worth checking out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, Think today we have another one of these fun interview editions. Uh, so to get us started, do you mind introducing yourself in the game we're here to talk about? Sure. My name is Richard Mansfield, and I'm here to talk about Ink Inside on behalf of Blackfield Entertainment, which is our uh, fun little indie dev company. Actually, to get us started, why don't we start with that? What what is Blackfield sure. Entertainment, and kind of what's the what, like? Where do you guys come from? That's the perfect question, actually, because that's the that's that's really the answer that's going to give you uh, a lot of other answers. So, uh, Blackfell Entertainment is actually a, a video production company. That's what we started as um, way back in 2014, which is uh, somehow 10 years ago. I don't know how that time passed, um, <laughs> but uh, basically, that's my production company, and I used to do a lot of uh, commercial and uh, film-related stuff and. Just pretty much the southwest of the United States, uh, a little bit in Hollywood, a little bit in Arizona, Utah, Nevada. Um, a lot of that work was like TV commercial stuff, but it was also like a lot of behind the scenes film work, uh, industrial video, filming pilots for like TV shows, uh, weird concept stuff. Uh, it, it goes, it, it, it very, it, the, the list is very long, so I won't get into all of it. I will simply say it was highly specialized, more in like the uh, Instagram. Uh, uh, influencer side of things like I did a lot of videos for them and eventually Blackfield uh, started working for Cartoon Network and in particular I started working with one of my best friends out there uh, Chris Graham he runs and owns Grumpy Face Studios so Grumpy Face is the studio that made a lot of the Cartoon Network licensed games uh, specifically like the mainline ones so I'm talking about uh, Steven Universe, uh, Attack the Light, Save the Light, Unleash the Light. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. So, like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some big games. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they also did like the Teeny Titans series, but they did like dozens and dozens of games. And what's funny is that since he's a very close friend of mine, I, I worked on a lot of these games just kind of for free, <laughs> just for fun. Uh, like I did a lot of QA, you know, and it was like, oh, we, we're about to release uh, Save the Light. We need to do like a crunch session. Let's like just do the longest QA session possible. Uh, you know, I'd like go over to the office and stay up all night. Um, so I was always trying to help him out, uh, especially with uh, marketing, because that's what my production company did was a lot of commercials and stuff. So Cartoon Network at the time didn't have a huge marketing budget, so I would fill in the gap for essentially free, you know, because I just liked the game and I liked the franchise. This eventually led to me actually getting hired by Grumpy Face. Uh, uh, excuse me. Worst possible time to get a, a tick in my throat. One second. Right, right. Not a problem. 
<laughs> happens oh, to all man. of us, don't you worry. That, that is 100% oh. happens to all of us. Actually, I was going to ask, because I'm trying to find... I actually knew someone oh, yeah. who worked on the Cartoon Network side of things, and that's what I'm trying to find. Oh, their really? Because I'm drawing a blank, oh. and I'm trying to pull them up real fast. Yeah. I knew I knew quite a few people over there. All, all good people, but, you know, not all of them. <laughs> I, I can't... I don't want to say too much, but... Uh, there, there's a lot of amazingly talented people over there for sure. Uh, um, his name was like Kartik. He currently is working at. He runs the studio oh. of Finite Reflection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we never worked together. Uh, okay. Like, but I heard of him through like the loop. We in, we did work and like hang out with quite a few other devs, including um, a lot of the people that now work on. Uh, oh, what's the name of the studio now? They did uh, that one Apple Arcade game that is grind. Grind? How? What? What is the name of it? Oh, Grindstone. There we go. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, Armadillo Games or something like that. I can't remember, but they're great. They're honestly run by one of the like smartest and most creative people we've met in the industry. Um, and a few other people went on to do. Uh, let's see. The oh my goodness, the Humble Bundle just released it. Like the the Wild. We were wild. I think it was called We Were Wild. Um, there's a few other ones too. But the point being that Cartoon Network had a habit of hiring outside dev teams to make their licensed games. And Grumpy Face was, internally, they referred to us as their, like, secret weapon. Because uh, Chris was so talented at just analyzing what these franchises were and putting together a game that not only made it feel like you're playing the game, but was true to the source material. You know, you felt like you this the, the game understood that these characters were specific ways, that these items had lore, that the whole world was a world that it needed to take place in. And a lot of other devs would uh, jump on these games and just, you know, crap out a licensed game. You don't really have a lot of options because these budgets aren't that great and the time you have isn't that great either. So you have to put a lot of work and love and care into these things if you want to make them good. Specifically because the budget and time, not so much for Cartoon Network. So uh, Chris knocked it out of the park every single time with dozens of games. And uh, I ended up producing uh, the last couple Steven Universe games, well, the Steven Universe Unleashed the Light, all the expansions, the Teeny Titans games. So I was a producer on those games. And that got me working hand-in-hand with uh, Cartoon Network and a few other uh, people, too, and understanding what a producer is on the video game side of things, because my experience was a producer on the video side of things. And I did a lot of uh, miscellaneous jobs there, too, uh, editing, directing, you name it had a lot of experience on my side when it came to the production side of things. But when it came to like producing, directing, and all that with video games, it was very eye-opening. I started software development um, myself uh, way before I ever actually officially worked at Grumpy Face, mainly as a form to experience and kind of test VR. I was getting a lot of VR video projects, so I needed to learn how to make VR games. <laughs> I needed to learn how to make VR software, so that led to uh, getting some something called a nano degree, which is just a like a program that's offered at a couple schools. This one was called Udacity. Almost, I'm sorry, just akin to like a certification almost, because I've seen like I've seen that, yes. or I've seen like like the ten week courses. Like I like I've seen a bunch too. Yes. Oh yeah, hundred percent that. So I just did that. It was this was six months, so it was a little bit longer, but they taught you just what was needed to use Unity, learn how to make VR, uh, and like you learn about all the SDKs that are out there for every freaking VR headset that it's imaginable. And this was 2015, so this is like really early on in VR. So that got me kind of uh, into developing in Unity. And long story short, fast forward all the way to uh, around 2019, 2020, 
Um, we, we finished Unleash the Light, uh, we managed to port it over to Steam, it was doing really well, we had some really great DLC updates, but with the pandemic, oh man, it hit Cartoon Network really hard. At the time, Warner Brothers, the, our parent company, Turner, uh, was going through a separate merger, we're going through another one now, mergers, 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 and we could kind of see the writing, at least I could see the writing on the wall, that this merger isn't going to end up well for anyone involved. Uh, Cartoon Network Games is probably going to just disappear or get, you know, wrapped up into another uh, company, which it Yeah, I, I have been but, hearing yeah. that stuff, and yeah, that is, there is some yeah. lot of concern. I've, I've been kind of hearing very similar, kind of, and seeing similar stuff. Yeah. Of like, yeah, there's a lot of, even like as a oh, brand, yeah. I feel like Cartoon Network is about to get very, very um, hit. Yes, uh, and a lot of that is coming from inside their own house, <laughs> like, you know, no diss on them. But uh, they decided to uh, not really pursue cartoons. Uh, they just want something on the air, some kind of content. So they're repackaging a lot of their old stuff on YouTube. And the new stuff they're going to be making is, there, I, for, I, from what I've heard, they're going to try to do live-action stuff again. And we all remember how like great that era of Cartoon Network was. <laughs> I, I'm absolutely being sarcastic when I say that. <laughs> it, was, it was the low point on Cartoon Network. So, uh, I, yeah, I don't want to get into it, but long story short, when I, when I was getting more work in Hollywood, I did a lot of stuff involving screenplays, usually, like, doctoring them up, and then that would be to pitch them to bigger studios, like Sony or Warner Brothers or even, you know, Nickelodeon. And then once you package these things up and you pitch them, the one thing a lot of people getting in the industry don't know or hear is that what you pitch always has a price tag attached to it. Because when you're pitching a project, it has to fit into the budget of these places. And you have to magically know what that num number is, which is what a really good producer will do. Because if you pitch a project that's like, oh, this is a $10 million project, and their budget is $6 million, they're going to tell you no. But if you pitch a $8 million project and the budget is $6 million, they'll be like, well, can you rewrite it to be $6 million? And my answer uh, way back in the day was yes. And I hated myself for it. Because you're basically making movies worse just so they can be filmed. And I don't want to do that. I want to make a good movie that's great because it's good, you know? And that ties into kind of the bigger perspective here is that I think what's happening in Hollywood with, you know, Cartoon Network and some other stuff is kind of expanding to the industry as a whole where a lot of these places just wanted to take very safe bets on making short-term, like, hey, we can make a lot of money doing this if we just kick it out the door quick. Uh, no offense to Nickelodeon, but All-Stars Brawl should have been one game. We shouldn't have All-Stars Brawl 1 and 2, and 2 is the superior game. Just made one good in a reasonable time frame, and then update it with DLC. People would pay hundreds of dollars for all the DLCs that's been added in All-Star Brawl 2. So, the point I'm simply... Smash is yeah. a perfect example of that. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So, the point simply being, a lot of these bigger companies just got short-sighted. They just wanted to put out really safe stuff for very slow budgets and not put money into anything that they considered risky. But risky is new, and risky that's new also has a chance of longevity. If you create a new IP, you can now profit off of it for decades instead of just a couple years. So that's why you keep seeing all these metaverse title type of games. People are trying to play it safe. Let's take the content we have and rehash it into something, and all they're doing, in my opinion, is diluting the waters. Everyone has, you know, like, for example, Terminator is a movie franchise that used to be iconic. Uh, Terminator 2, one of the best sci-fi movies, arguably, of all time. And now, if I said, hey, there's a new Terminator movie coming out, who the hell would want to see it? <laughs> like, no one. Because they made four more after Terminator 2, and they all sucked. 
So now we have four bad movies and arguably two good ones. And how is, is any new one supposed to compete with its own franchise? Like the more Hollywood plays it safe, the more they learn about something called diminishing marginal returns, which is the more you have of something, the less that is worth. <laughs> you just have to make a new thing. That's where the value is. So this is my giant rant, but uh, this is my way of saying I also have like a business education. So a little bit of where Ink Inside comes from is a market analysis of what's missing. Like if I'm going to make something new, I want to make something new for a market that is there, which is completely opposite of what Cartoon Network and a lot of these other companies are doing. And that really kind of comes to where <laughs> to answer your first question, which is now like 27 minutes into it, but I can talk for a, lo a long time. So if you need to tell me to, to shut up, I will. But um... Long story short, uh, Cartoon Network has, was having issues. I saw the writing on the wall on my side of things in Hollywood, too, that a lot of people are downsizing, and it's going to affect a lot of people. Uh, I had been saving up to make a movie for quite some time, uh, to finance it myself, and I saw an opportunity instead to just make a video game. So that's what I did. <laughs> um, with Cartoon Network pulling away, I offered a couple freelance jobs to a few of the Grumpy Face employees to see if they would be wanting to work for me on a new video game project, and they said yeah, and I secured some funding, and we were off to the races. So it started as essentially a, a TV show, like Ink Inside was a pitch that I had that I was pitching to uh, Nickelodeon. I never made it to Cartoon Network, but I did make it to Nickelodeon. And they told me that uh, it was going to be too expensive to make because I had an integration of animation and live action. And they're like, you need to pick one of those. And animation's really expensive, so can we make it live action? And I was like, you want drawings in a notebook to be live action. <laughs> like, guys, you don't understand what, what you're That's asking so here. That's so interesting no. how, like, to yeah. me, because... And maybe I'm a crazy person. I no, feel no, like no, the the yeah. and like the animation would be the more expensive one. So I, to me, I'd almost feel yes. like the live action would save budgets on an animation. Like like I don't know. Like to Thank me, you. I can see. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that's a hundred percent. Yes, that was my perspective. I thought, oh, this will be an easy pitch because it's not all animation. So instead of writing a whole episode, you can write, you know, the 75% of one and the other 25% is live action. You have less of an animation budget. In a weird way, it reminds me of like yeah. how they did Power Rangers originally. How, like they imported yes! the, the Zord scenes and like that go. part then's cheaper and now you just pay a license mm -hmm. fee and the rest of it, you just do like... Yeah, that's 100%. 100%. And that was my perspective. And theirs was the exact opposite. They were like... Oh, you have live action in your animation? Well, can you just do it live action? Because that's the cheapest thing possible. And I'm like, it li literally is an impossibility. You can't make Ink Inside just live action. That's like, you are killing the idea. It ties into the idea, I, the premise I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, they ask for a budget, and if, it's le if you don't have the pitch that's within that budget, they will ask you to turn it into something that's horrible. And a lot of creatives just say yes, because they want to see their thing made. And I just saw it happen so often, where these really great ideas get turned into crap because it will make a studio money, that I just wanted to leave the system entirely. Because at least with indie dev and video games, you can find a voice, you can make a video game, you can make your statement, you don't have to go through some gatekeeper to like actually have the thing made. And then I found out 2023 happened, and that's now the case with video games, but that's a separate, it's a separate story. Uh, 2023 has been brutal for indie devs. Um, it's very much the same problem, where all these publishers out there don't have any money, and they don't want to publish a game, so a lot of indie games are just falling to the wayside. 
Um, they are finding other revenues, you know, they're going to like Kickstarter and stuff, but it's just sad to see these honestly amazing games not find someone that can just help them find the dev costs to get out there. But that's, I'll talk about that later. Because what I really wanted to focus on is just answering, eh, where did Inconside come from? So, essentially, uh, it came from 2020 and the uh, all the problems that were happening in uh, the world. When uh, it affected business, it affected game devs, it affected movie makers and everything. So I had a chance to start my own company in a different direction, to change Blackfield from one that was making commercials to one that was making software. And I thought, well, screw it. I like this idea I had, uh, Inconside. I've been pitching it for... I, I wrote it over the course of, like... Technically 10 years, but that sounds really more impressive than it is. I started it 10 years ago, sat on it for like seven years, <laughs> and then wrote it again. So uh, essentially, I, it was a project I, I really liked. I, it's something I wrote almost, I think, starting in film school, which is way you know back in like 2007. And uh, it's something I just fell in love with. It was an idea I always loved exploring uh, in terms of storytelling. It's, uh, you know, the heart of the story itself is about using art to, uh, you know, address uh, problems in your life and that art can be therapeutic. And uh, it's nice that I got to actually make that game and it ended up being therapeutic for me, but that's that's a whole separate thing. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I know I'm talking a lot, my caffeine's kicking in. But with the pandemic, uh, I, there was a chance for me to start, instead of a, video, a movie, to start a video game. So I hired a bunch of people from Grumpy Face that wanted to jump on board, and then we started our pre-production phase, and one thing led to another, I found some investors, pre-production is very promising, and we were off to the races. Um, the actual design of the game, when I wrote it, when I the decision that I made to actually finance this thing and bring it to market was all because uh, it is, one, it's a new story I wanted to tell, it's something interesting. But this type of game, like you said, is like missing in the market. There's not a lot of Steam games that are aimed towards younger audiences, like 9 to 14. There's not a lot of Steam games that have this aesthetic. Uh, and there's certainly not a lot of games that try to recreate what it is to like watch a good TV show. You know, like games have very much refined what a game is in, in this one direction very very far and it's beautiful like honestly like game design is an art form in itself and it is insanely detailed and crazy uh but i think there is this new unexplained the thing that's beautiful to me about video games is that you, anything can be a video game you can get so creative with the medium itself that it pays to take risks it pays to deviate from that path that is set for like oh this is what a video game is because you might end up in new territory that's really fun and interesting and that's what nintendo used to do you know they just go out into the weeds and all of a sudden you'd get like you know arms and you're like you got a weird remote controlled boxing game where the hell did this come from nintendo so that's kind of my approach is i wanted something for younger kids I wanted something that was stylistically very unique and stood out, that matched uh, that audience for younger kids, and something that when you play is like I've I've never played anything like this, or you can't you you find it hard to compare it to something. Um, with the hope being that there is a younger audience on PC, specifically with Roblox and Minecraft, uh, kids nowadays that buy PCs are like eight or nine, you know? So there's a lot of kids out there that have Steam accounts and they only use it for like three games. So I want to be game number four <laughs> is essentially the hope here, fingers crossed. But, um, yeah. So if you don't mind a second, it's one of the things I'm always curious about because yeah. like, 
education games are infamously a thing that dies on Steam. And I feel like in a, yeah. usually you get the young demographics kind of, it seems like they, like, sure, you get like those breakouts we just said, but like, it yeah. very much seems like one of those spaces that does kind of get collapsed upon or die. Even though it was an education space like, oh, when yeah. I was growing up, when you were growing up, like, yeah. why do you think that is? And then, and then how do you kind of feel like this game kind of, kind of deals with those concerns? Oh, yeah. So, um, one, it's kind of interesting because there is a small resurgence of those types of games. Like, I don't know if you've seen, but Pajama Sam is, everyone's playing it now, <laughs> like, for some reason. And uh, the the collapse of that mainly has to do with just everyone leaving that market. Like, the when it comes to making games, a lot of it is market saturation versus risk. So when a market is just starting to be popular, people want to make that version of that kind of game. So, for example, in the 90s, edutainment was huge. You know, you got your Pajama Sams, you got your Putt-Putts. Uh, there was a million other games that were like point-and-click, you know, child-friendly games. And then Doom came out, and it, it turns out if you just make a first-person shooter that's super violent, you can just print money. So a lot of these companies just started making that. And it's hilarious because <laughs> there's an infamous game on the Nintendo 64 it's a first-person shooter that's about Noah rescuing animals, Noah's Ark, and it was originally a Hellraiser game, <laughs> because they bought the license for Hellraiser. Oh, I remember and realized, this one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the point I'm saying is that you can start as an edutainment company in the 90s, and then once a genre of video game is popular, you start making that to make money. So the problem isn't necessarily that these styles of games weren't popular, it's that other styles of games were new and blowing up, and no one really came back, you know? Like, the good, the interesting thing is that Ink isn't a point-and-click adventure, so it separates itself from that, and it isn't, I wouldn't really say it's edutainment, like, there are morals to the story, but there's morals to, like, a Pixar movie, you know? So, essentially, I wanted to make a fun action beat-em-up that when you finish it at the end of the day, if you, like, played it with your parents, you may feel, like, closer to them. And that's the whole point, is I wanted to make a game that, like, parents wanted to play with their kids. So it's, like, all ages, it's fun for the kids, fun for the adults, have a little bit of, you know, some jokes in there. Essentially, like, the Shrek. I wanted to make, like, a Shrek of video games. Because <laughs> that is very much the DreamWorks mentality, was the, like, we're the adult yep. Pixar, like... <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. I mean, I have a fairy that curses. She's literally the princess of cursing. It's all, it's all bleeped out, you know, so it's, like, always played for laughs. But the funny part is just like DreamWorks, there's an actual sentimental reason for that. Like, that is, I, like, basically the core of her identity is that she was drawn as this fairy that curses, and she was drawn that way because uh, the girl that drew that character, her dad was very protective. Her dad wanted to protect her, uh, his daughter, and during a thunderstorm said a few things he shouldn't have, and uh, she thought it was hilarious, so she created a princess that did just that. <laughs> and that reveal is like kind of a heartfelt moment. You know, you get this really interesting, funny character that's cursing the whole game, and you're like, oh, ha. And then you realize later, no, that actually is played to a real heartfelt reason. It's not just for laughs. It is set up in punchline. It's actual, like, you know, character development, storytelling, and all that. And it's funny because, like, that's the hardest thing to talk about with this game, because uh, it's very hard to do that in a video game that isn't a visual novel or, like, a really good RPG. You know, Baldur's Gate is so addictive in part because you care about these characters so much. You want to see what happens next to them. And I think that's the best example for where the market is now. People want a very driven story experience that they can just get involved in. 
And that is a real big part of where I wanted Ink to hit. I wanted it to be a very story-driven experience that just people had fun, you know, playing. Um, that way, even if the gameplay falls short in some areas or a place, you know, an area gets too hard, at least it makes you want to see what's next. The environment itself is charming, and you just want to be in it. So you hopefully can get good and figure out how to beat the next boss and, you know, get to the next area. Um, but there's a whole bunch of mechanics there I could talk about later. So I'll, I'm actually I also I was about that's exactly what I was about to jump in was so obviously said it went yeah. from TV pitches to game. Let's, yes. let's so so those the big differences we could both that was the very obvious big mm-hmm. difference is interactivity. So yes. so w- what kind of is that loop? What does it look like? What what can people kind of expect to do? Per, that's a great question. So the when it was a TV show, it was an action like TV show. I want I pitched basically Avatar, but with uh, sports games. So instead of like these kids knowing kung fu and then having to express it through uh, manipulating elements, I had it so these kids knew kung fu and they expressed it through sports. So they would do like crazy volleyball attacks and soccer attacks and all sorts of stuff. And um, when it came to making that into a game, there's a lot of material there you can work with a ton. And so it's about what in that material could be the funnest. And way back in the day, NES had a dodgeball game. It was very, very fun. But people don't realize the company that made that dodgeball game kept making dodgeball games for Nintendo until 2008. The the last mainline dodgeball game was on the DS, and it was called Dodgeball Brawl. So... I played it and it's trash because I don't get me wrong. I love these dodgeball games, like like they, like they are a part of me. But the control scheme on these they're atrocious. It's so hard to play these games now because um, it's you know old Nintendo. They didn't really have you know the the science for game dev down. So in Dodgeball Brawl, you had the dodgeball element, but also a beat 'em up element. And I thought if you could just get those to work together, you could have a really fun gameplay loop. So. To answer your question about what the gameplay loop is, I took the idea of sports, uh, specifically dodgeball. I took the ideas of where it failed on the NES, uh, well, I guess the DS in 2008, with dodgeball brawl, and I hyper-focused on trying to get those elements to work in a combat situation. So the core loop of Ink Inside is, it's an RPG, so it's our overworld exploration, but instead of walking into a battle where it's like, oh, choose your Pokemon, and now you know, choose your fighting options, you walk into a battle and it turns into a dodgeball arena. And then you literally dodgeball. But the way dodgeball mechanics work are more of fighting game dodgeball. So like you would see in River City Ransom or River City Girls. So the game is actually a beat-em-up. And the core loop in that fight is once you get into those fights is to simply dodge enough attacks or do enough dodgeball attacks yourself to build up this meter that lets you break the rules. I'm making air quotes. Uh, You can totally see it. Um, and when you break the rules, you shatter that invisible line in the middle of the stage, and now the whole arena becomes just yours to to beat up enemies in. So it literally then becomes a beat 'em up. So at any time, you can do melee attacks, and there's ways you can lure enemies to your side. But the core loop is do enough cool stuff like uh, basic attacks, dodging attacks, until you can just shatter that center barrier and go pummel the enemy on the other side. Um, and then rinse and repeat. There's some core mechanics, too, that are going to test your skills there. Um, the first is just, hey, can you figure out how to build up that meter with certain enemies? Like, the idea is don't get hit. You know, it's dodgeball. So we lean into this, like, try to avoid getting hit so that meter can build up fast. But we, we know it's a kid's game, so we try not to punish you too much. We tend to favor 
power fantasy over like difficulty there is a difficulty scale but once you get the initial like hook of the game it can be very easy and uh it's fat i'll tell you about play tests later but it's very fascinating to see the different types of people who either slowly learn how to play or just immediately know how to like whoop butt in this game like instantly so um <laughs> beyond that simple premise we then test your uh, test each one of those skills in different ways eventually you start finding enemies that have armor so you can't hit them with a dodgeball at all you have to melee them so then the strategy is okay well how do i build up my um, like core meter to break the rules to get over there to punch that enemy to break their shields so I can then do more damage with like a dodgeball. And then you have the other enemies eventually that deflect your attacks. So if you like throw a dodgeball at them, they knock it right back at you and it does a ton of damage. So then there's this other mechanic where you can catch it and do something called hang time, which is basically Red Dead Redemption's like bullet time, red eye. So you now can jump up in the air and then just target one or one, one to five enemies with a dodgeball and bypass like any deflecting attacks. So it's fun because while on the surface level, it is just a beat em up with dodgeball and like RPG elements. We made sure that the dodgeball and beat em up part actually has a very deceptively deep combat system where uh in addition to all of these abilities and certain enemies that have them you also have like upgrade perks that are like a job system that we kind of borrowed from final fantasy tactics and copied in like a kid-friendly way and all sorts of other stuff that tweak the way you can actually do this combat into a lot of fun approaches you know i took a, a page out of um hades and even dead cells where like you have this core gameplay but it can be experienced differently based off of just the equipment you have. So even though the enemies are the same and the stage layout's the same, it's a different playthrough entirely if you have a ranged weapon versus if you have like a really cool sword. Um, the same thing is for Ink. You know, we have some builds that are really lean heavily on just using a ton of dodgeballs for a ton of damage, and we have another one that's like really melee friendly. You know, one can have you basically using a shield to block enemy attacks that then buff your next dodgeball attack, and then you can one hit a bunch of people. Then we have other builds where you have a sword that lets you like close distance next to enemies, so you can then melee the crud out of them. And as long if you deflect an attack with that sword, it also increases your melee strength. So, like, there's all these ways you can, like, lean into different play styles that we just wanted to make fun. So, once we got the loop down, which is just beat people up, cross the line, beat them up more, it was then, okay, how can we do that, make it fun in, like, as many ways possible. So, that's that's where we are now, is I think we have something that is really kind of fun in a bunch of different ways, and the idea is you explore that as you play. Like, hey, I encountered this one enemy that's kind of hard. Okay, well, maybe I should try to use these other items because that's what these NPCs are telling me. Oh, this NPC says I should use a shield against those guys. Maybe I should try that. Like, we don't try to force the player to make these decisions. We just try to make it obvious what a good one is and then leave it up to the player to find the fun because we made sure that that sandbox is just full of a lot of it in different ways. So hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> Sorry to go on again for like another like oh, that 10 minutes about totally that. totally does. That's interesting how you're control. So so the big thing to me kind of when you when you when we're kind of like, but you're being like a dodgeball based thing, it's how do you feel like, there's a good one because dodgeball feels like one of those cultural touchstones that like exists for people in six foot doesn't kind of also like yeah, was that always kind of your original plan was like when you were thinking of adjusting it like that was the original one, was there other like kind mm -hmm. of gameplay types, because like, the other one to me obviously is like, you could, because you could like turn base this thing, there's like a few ways you could probably do this that like wouldn't oh, fundamentally yeah. change what you're telling that story and I'm kind of curious Yes. Was it just and you wanted great... to do this from the beginning, or? Uh, uh, yes, it is. 
but also there's a reason because uh, a lot of games have tried dodgeball uh, recently too, and there's an element to it that needs to be, in my opinion, action based and or like actual real time. If you don't have dodgeball in real time, you miss the suspense of it. Did the ball hit? Did it not hit? Did I block it? Did I catch it? The immediate reactions to that are kind of missed if you do turn-based, you know? Like, uh, Dodgeball Academia uh, is actually a great game, 100% love it, and they took a page out of that. They took, like, kind of turn-based and added some action elements, but it can be a little slow at times, and the story, even though I like it, is very, like, hyperactive. <laughs> and then you have, like, uh, the... What's the... something Knockout Kings, I want to say? or There's a... Yeah, and that Knockout one was City. actually really... Knockout City. Knockout City. Knockout City was really, really fun. And if you got into a good match with a couple players, it had a lot of the elements I was looking for. But And then there's another one that was made by um, a really famous team that had another turn-based uh, dodgeball mechanic. And I can't remember the name of the game. It was called, like, Wildermyth. It was, it's an interesting study, too, because this game came out and, for all intents and purposes, should have done very well, and no one even heard of it or, or tried it. And it won, like, a ton of awards. And anyway, so point being that I wanted to lean into Dodgeball, so since you said it is a cultural st like icon, I wanted to lean into it in a way that could be new, but also still retained the, I, I, the, you know, the thoughts you have of what Dodgeball is. And to me, that analysis is action. It has to be the more real-time, the better. And that's what I loved about the original NES games, is that as frustrating as they were to control, it was all real-time. It was all like, you you literally throw that ball, and in real-time it bounces off someone or it doesn't. You can do a really crazy special move, and if you happen to hit a couple enemies, it was like the best feeling in the game. So uh, I wanted to capitalize on that feeling, this feeling that if you knew how to throw this ball well, it could be really fun. But I wanted to make it an experience that was beyond dodgeball, because, you know, dodgeball is like, oh, okay, this could be a fun game because it is dodgeball. But if you look above that, it's just throwing a ball at stuff. It's just hitting things with a ball. That's really fun, right? Like, every kid out there wants to build a thing and then hit it with a ball to watch it explode. So that is kind of what I approach this game with. Everything in the game is meant to get hit by a dodgeball. You know, <laughs> like, it has some kind of reaction to it. It's not just the enemies. It's the environment itself. So once you start looking at it that way... It's no longer really dodgeball. It's just Legend of Zelda. And instead of a sword, you have a dodgeball. <laughs> so you poke that sword into everything and see what happens. That obviously includes enemies. So my answer to that is that in order to really lean into the dodgeball aspect, you have to embrace fundamentally what that aspect is and can be. So I saw it to me is this action-based thing, and what it can be is it can go so much beyond that. It can be the tool you use instead of a sword to interact with this environment. So that's kind of how we lean into it. And with that approach, it now becomes more of an actual beat-em-up with dodgeball elements than a dodgeball game with like beat-em-up elements. And I think once you express it that way to players, it tends to click a bit more. Because so few dodgeball games exist, it's really hard to compare. So if you're just like, oh, it's a beat-em-up, it's an RPG beat-em-up, but with like crazy dodgeball elements, it tends to fit a little bit better with people's brains. Um, if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, that totally does. I do, I do think that like, that paragraph shift, sometimes it sounds like some like nuanced thing, but it's so different, it's funny. Because it's like, people are like, yes. oh, no, that's, you're just saying the same thing. I'm like, no, no, you're not saying the same thing when you flip stuff like yes. that. Exactly. Oh, exactly. And that's the thing is you want to, you still want to take a page out of like what works. You know, you don't want to redesign something so much that it's no longer the fun thing that you enjoy. But you also want to 
get a little risky with how you can replace that thing, you know? Like, when we, our very first alphas of this game, we started with, the idea was, dodgeball is your main weapon. So that interacts with everything. So it was open world. We didn't have these little, like, matches where you walk into an arena, and then all of a sudden, boom, here's the arena, and now you fight people. We literally had it so you would just walk around and throw a dodgeball at people, literally just like Legend of Zelda. But the problem with that was that the combat no longer had this structure that was fun. It was it was fun for a moment once you got the mechanics, but every enemy was essentially somewhat of the same challenge. It's, in my opinion, the same design issue that like Zelda 64 and a lot of the 3D Zeldas pre-Breath you know Breath of the Wild had, and that the only difference that any enemy really has is like how long they're going to waste your time. <laughs> That's it, you know? How long do I block before I hit? How long do I hit them first? Do I sidestep first? So every combat in that game was just figuring out a way to waste the player's time in one way or another so they can attack them. And don't get me wrong, this isn't me shitting on Nintendo. I'm simply saying there's a limitation with that design. And you, they got really creative with it, but I really wanted to supersede that with us, you know? So when I saw, hey, in, in this alpha we have, this open world with a dodgeball and beat-em-up, feels like Zelda, but in a bad way, that is something I wanted to take into consideration. So we kind of rebuilt the combat to be this, like, more of an RPG experience with a ton of Zelda elements, and when you make it just a single room, well, now you can add all sorts of environmental stuff for that dodgeball to interact with. Now it's not just, do you wander around and hit an enemy? It's, I walked into this forest where there's trees I can hit to knock down leaves and water that I can, like, try to avoid or knock enemies into, or I walked into this, like, uh village where I can hit barrels to like roll over my enemies. So now we have all these mini arenas, and those arenas become part of the game itself. If the idea is the world is interactable, we now guarantee that every fight has some interactive elements by creating each fight into an arena versus more of an open world. That way we can control it, we can lay out other cool stuff, and now it's a little bit funner. So when you actually hit those combat points, it's about not just hey, can I defeat this enemy in this one way? It's how, what is the best way or the funnest way for me to beat this enemy? I have options. I can interact with the environment. I can bounce stuff off of walls. I can lure them over here. There's so much stuff that opens up if you just simply restrain the combat a little bit. And that ended up being, like, to me, the this, like, the, what's it called? The key to, like, really getting the funnest parts of this game to happen. So, anyway, I, I've ranted way too long about it, but it's just an interesting... I appreciate the compliment, by the way, so thank you. <laughs> no, no, that, that that's perfect. Um, yeah, we've talked, we've been talking a lot, obviously, about it. Um, I, I was going to give you the floor to kind of, as we get to the tail end of this, kind of, is there any mm -hmm. aspect or piece or something on it that you want to, like, highlight as, like, a final oomph? And then after that, obviously, where 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 should people go be checking this out to go wishlist and all that fun stuff? Gotcha. Um, first, let me just say, I hope... Uh, it was entertaining listening to me talk. I hope I answered most of your questions instead of just like. Oh no, three. no, you totally, have, you totally have. You totally have. And legitimately, it's, I, it's it's been three because you you were giving so much efficient <laughs> questions. Don't 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 you worry. Okay, cool. All right, just making sure. I tend to I tend to either be a good interviewee or a really bad one. So I'm hoping it's a good one this time. <laughs> but uh, so, so thank you for that, and also thank you for having me the, giving me the floor here. Um, just to to really put the nail in the coffin. Um. Like, when I mentioned, hey, we started as, like, uh, someone that, you know, used to pitch for movies and TV, like, I always wanted to make a really cool uh, movie or a television show. I just wanted to make a cool story and experience. 
And I feel like we kind of actually nailed that on the head with Ink Inside. Um, it's very far done, and the story that's being told is a really big one that I think can resonate with people. Um, we got an all-star cast of voice actors uh, because of my old ties with Hollywood, and um, we they really delivered on this. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about uh, them too. So uh, I'll, I'll mention a few because like there's still a few I can't unfortunately because of the SAG strikes. But um, uh, we have uh, Brian David Gilbert, uh, the famous YouTuber. Uh, he's the voice of Stick, our, our main character. He does an amazing job as this character. Oh my goodness, I can't I can't give this guy enough props comedic genius like honestly like some of these lines i've heard a thousand times and they still make me laugh <laughs> and then there's uh the other main character traff is is played by Denise melody and uh she's not a very widely known name but if i mention the characters that she's played her characters are iconic um she plays marie in the new uh, neon genesis evangelion movies She's also uh, the lead in Netflix's Romantic Killer, if you like uh, fun rom-coms. But um, the point I simply wanted to make is that I really wanted to make sure this was a, an experience, like, uh, the best kind of experience possible in every way possible. So the characters are fun. They're voiced by professionals. We have we open that up uh, with our Kickstarter to have, like, some other upcomer uh, voice actors, too. They all did an amazing job. Uh, and overall, the actual like gameplay elements too are something that I think is unique. I think there's not a lot out there that's like this. Uh, it's inspired and remixed with a lot of stuff that I can all point to and be like, if you like Zelda, if you like Steven Universe, if you like uh, River City Girls, if you like any of those things, this game has a little bit of DNA from all of them. And uh, it's meant to sit down and play it almost like you're watching a TV show where you can just play and experience the story up to a point you like. And then, yeah, if you want to sit down and see the rest of it later, cool. But if you want to binge, like this is Netflix, then hey, you can do that too. <laughs> but uh, the, the story is not only uh, sympathetic and like heartfelt and interesting, it's funny as hell. Like there's some really great moments. And that's the other thing is that if I was going to make a video game, I wanted to make something with a little comedy in it. Because I think that's missing from the market, too. There's so many classic games that came out back in the day that are, in my opinion, some of the funniest video games ever made, and virtually no one remembers them anymore. Um, Conker's Bad Fur Day on the N64? Classic. Uh, it, it not only has amazing gameplay mechanics that change per different worlds, the comedy itself is like some of the best writing in a video game you can find. Uh, they even wrote a song for a giant poop to sing, called I'm the Great Mighty Pooh. Like, how do you get to that level of execution again? It's impossible. Like, no one is making that kind of comedy game, right? So I wanted to take some elements, and if I'm being risky, might as well be risky in that way too. So that's why we have a cursing fairy princess. That's why we have all sorts of other uh, weird little twi twists and turns with uh, how we can tell jokes and stuff. So essentially, I tried to bake in what I saw as a kid, what I thought a good Saturday morning cartoon was, action, adventure, mystery, like this bigger story that's being told. And I tried to marry it with all the games I played as a kid too. Uh, you know, fun action RPGs, uh, really interesting experiences with <laughs> dodgeball. But uh, I wanted to basically make a game for me and a lot of my friends for when we were kids, but it's actually now a game for their kids. And it's great because those kids are picking it up and they're enjoying what they're you know playing and I guess we hopefully have something that they like and will be memorable moving forward. 
So, yeah, this this is my way of saying, uh, if you like Saturday morning cartoons and you like old school, like NES, SNES games, this game should be a really fun experience. It feels like you're playing a cartoon show in a really unique play style that really isn't anywhere else. Very simple to pick up, simple beat-em-up, uh, you know, controls with really deep understand, like, deep learning curve if you wanted to, if you want to pursue that. Um, and yeah, it has a great star cast uh, that I think you'll get a lot of laughs out of. So yeah, go check out Ink Inside. Uh, it's on Steam right now. Uh, it's not for sale, but it will be soon. I can't announce new dates yet because we're probably in the middle of a publishing deal, so I can't say. Oh, you anything. definitely can't but, be sharing at that point. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. But yeah, Ink yeah. Inside. Wishlist it. Yeah. Uh, everyone, go yes. wishlist it. Please go wishlist it, and uh, that helps out a ton. And beyond wishlisting, we do have a Discord. Uh, you can find that on our Steam page. We also have a website, inkinsidegame.com. Uh, you can find all sorts of information there, links to our Discord, links to Steam. We'll also be posting like major updates there, too. Uh, right now, we use the Discord to mainly talk to uh, our fans and uh, our Kickstarter backers, but it is a growing community. We're already over like 200 members. So I anticipate that might get a little bit bigger uh, with some of the marketing stuff we have next year. So get in, get in while it's hot. Get in while it's early, and you can still talk to me. Because I, 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 I talk just as much as I do here as I do in the Discord server. <laughs> Way too much, considering the work I'm doing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your time as well. This has been a really fun way to spend my day. So I hope it was for you too. Perfect. Well, no, it was great. Thank you again for your time. And again, everyone, go yeah. wishlist it. Go check it out. And there is still a demo, right, on Steam available? Yes. Yes, there is a demo right now. Uh, it actually was updated to have multiplayer, so you can play the demo with a friend. Uh, it is missing some UI elements for that, so sorry about that. That'll be uh, very, very soon we'll have that updated. But yeah, go play the demo, go play it with a friend, and uh, hopefully you agree that it's something that looks interesting enough to uh, pick up once we come out next year. Uh, very soon, uh, probably like Q1, Q2, so we're coming soon. But I uh, can't say anything official because reasons. So thank you <laughs> for understanding. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you again for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you too, man. Thank you so much as well for uh, hitting us up. And uh, if you have any other questions or you want to stay in touch in any way, let me know. I'm happy to talk again. And uh, yeah, hope you have a great day, man. Thank you so much. The SW Show and all of its affiliate podcasts are podcast by me, Mike Maroney and AJ Losey, by, sometimes by our contributors, including Corey King. You can follow The SWW Show on social media at The SWW Show, or sooner or later, you go to patreon.com slash SWW to help us out. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.